Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. Support for the California Report comes from Earth Justice, a national nonprofit law organization fighting for the right to a healthy environment. Earth Justice, because the Earth needs a good lawyer. Water Heaters Only, specializing in the repair and replacement of water heaters since 1968. Licensed and insured, open 24 hours a day, every day. Learn more at waterheatersonly.com. And... Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose philanthropy includes Schmidt Futures, focused on finding exceptional people and helping them do more for others together, on the web at SchmidtFutures.com. It's a holiday special from the California Report magazine. As you might know, we're celebrating our 25th year on the air, and so we've been digging into our archives to find some of our favorite stories from the season. Like when longtime host Scott Schaefer dressed up as an elf to help out a guy in a red suit. And the kids will look at you and they'll turn their head and they'll squint. And they're like, is that a real beard? And my response is always, it's real. It's real itchy. Plus, we bring you the secrets of a traditional Armenian holiday pudding made with ingredients all grown in the Central Valley to help bring in the new year. It really satisfies this, this deep, yearning for sweet. I'm Sasha Coca, and this is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. We're going to start with a story about a posada, a street procession celebrated by many Latinx communities here in California. It reenacts Mary and Joseph's search for shelter, and it takes on a very different form at the southern tip of San Diego County along the U.S.-Mexico border. Back in 2014, Stephen Cuevas brought us this story about how people on both sides of the reinforced security fence meet to sing carols, share news, and have tearful reunions, all under the watchful eye of the Border Patrol. I join a few dozen people on a chilly Saturday trudging along a muddy horse trail. We head towards the Pacific Ocean, where the immense border wall that snakes across the outskirts of Tijuana disappears into the waves. After about 20 minutes, the sticky mud gives way to wet sand. Bundled in heavy winter coats and hats, the procession marches along the beach for another mile. The border wall gradually comes into view through a veil of sea mist. For 21 years, San Diegans and Tijuanans have been coming together along this border to celebrate Christmas. Christian Ramirez is with the American Friends Service Committee, an advocacy group that helps organize the annual Posada Sin Fronteras, or Posada Without Borders, 
For this event, border agents on the U.S. side allow people to cross into a secured area where they can visit with people on the Tijuana side through postage stamp-sized gaps in the fence. And today we stand here uh, not being able to touch each other, not being able to pass food across the border. Despite that division, you know, folks continue to come here and celebrate this very beautiful moment for us, which is Christmas. Carlos Aragon Padilla traveled here from South San Francisco to see his sister, nephew, and other relatives. He's not seen them since last visiting Mexico about 10 years ago. They drove for 24 hours from Mazatlan, nearly 1,000 miles, to attend the Posada and to see Carlos. They're my whole life the loves of my life, my siblings, my nieces and nephews, my sister's grandchildren. They're the ones who push me the most to make it in this country to really try my best. Padilla's nephew sings a ballad that expresses a traveler's longing to return and reunite, even in death, with his native land, his Mexico lindo, his beautiful Mexico. There's no cross-border reunion for Yolanda Varona. She's lived in Tijuana since being denied re-entrance to the U.S. five years ago after having a tourist visa revoked. She's attending the Posada with a group of other women who've all left children or grandchildren behind in the U.S. Varona did get to see her adult son, who's now a U.S. citizen, at a border event here earlier this year. One of my grandchildren came too, but I didn't like it. The child left traumatized. She thinks I'm in jail. She is too little to understand. She doesn't know I'm deported. I don't want to see her come back here. She just couldn't handle what she saw. Varona says it was still important for her to attend today's celebration. This event especially, for me, signifies our desire that they remove this fence to let us return to the U.S. We are asking to be back in our homes. There's also a few non-Latinos celebrating Posada on the Tijuana side, including a grizzled Irishman with Santa Claus white whiskers. Patrick Murphy, very Irish. That's Father Patrick Murphy. He runs Casa del Migrante, a Roman Catholic aid group in Tijuana that provides shelter and other help to immigrants recently deported from the U.S. He says the theme of the traditional posada, of Mary and Joseph repeatedly being denied and eventually finding shelter, takes on added meaning here. And so this is symbolically a reminder for us to come together in prayer from both the U.S. and the Mexican side to remind people that there are a lot of people who need posadas. They need shelter as well. And we commit to welcoming the immigrants as we will want to welcome our Lord Jesus into our home. There is a political subtext to the border posada, but that's not really what the event is all about, says Christian Ramirez of the American Friends Service Committee. I think for this little moment today, the great tensions and the many opinions that the immigration debate races, all of that disappears. And, uh, you know, I can't help but to have my heart warm in what is uh, perhaps one of the coldest places in our country, the U.S.-Mexico border.
As sunset approaches, celebrants brace themselves against the chilly ocean winds. U.S. border agents need to clear the area. People pull themselves from the fence and say goodbye to friends and relatives they may not see again until next Christmas. For the California Report, I'm Stephen Cuevas in San Diego County. If you attended our virtual 25th birthday party this month, you know that Scott Schaefer hosted our show for 18 years. He's a serious political journalist and now heads up our politics and government team. But one of his favorite stories from back in 2007 is about the time he dressed up as an elf, a Jewish guy really going the extra mile for a story. And here's where we've got to give you a warning. If you're listening with kids who got a visit from Santa this year, you might want to hit pause. Okay, here it goes. The story starts with Scott checking Craigslist and calling up a Santa for hire. Nine, four, six, three, nine. Hello? Uh, hi, uh, I'm calling about the Santa Claus ad. Oh, yes, how do you do? That's me. Charles Jennings, a.k.a. Santa Charles, lives in Berkeley. Most of the year, he's a merchant marine. But in December, he's Santa Claus. I'm 34 years old. It's kind of young for Santa. I'm very young for Santa, but I started when I was 16. What's this? A teenage Santa Claus? Is there no Santa regulatory agency? No minimum age requirement to be the jolly old man? Turns out the owner of the grocery store where Jennings worked as a kid was supposed to be Santa at the store's holiday party that year, but he had a bit too much to drink. So Jennings filled in. And the rest, as they say, is history. Now Jennings has his own hire-a-Santa company called, somewhat ominously, You Better Be Good. I've been Santa Claus for Francis Ford Coppola, for uh, the Oakland Raiders, for John Fogarty of CCR. Yep, he's a regular Santa to the stars. But alas, life as Santa isn't always so glamorous. I've been kicked, I've been threatened, I've been pushed, I've been spit on. Uh, I've had somebody steal my poinsettias. I've had somebody steal a bag of candy from me. Ouch. Who knew there could be such a dark side to being Santa? It's 9.30 on a recent Sunday morning in the gymnasium at St. Stephen's School in San Francisco. Volunteers are getting ready for the annual pancake breakfast fundraiser. Turns out the guy who played Santa last year retired. It fell to Tony Maffei to find a new one. I found Charles actually on Craigslist of all places. What kind of personality did you look for? Somebody who could deal with probably 200 uh, children, who's patient, who's outgoing, who's, um, for lack of a better term, a little bit bubbly, a little bit uh, an extrovert. Right, no introverts, and no one with a criminal record either. Maffei says this guy, Santa Charles, seemed to fit the bill perfectly. On the other side, just on the other side of the car. We head out to the parking lot to wait for Santa's sleigh, which turns out to be a green Toyota pickup truck. Santa Charles, dressed in street clothes, hops out, shakes my hand, and opens a large suitcase. I brought two costumes with me. If you want to try one on, you can be... An elf. He wants me to dress up as an elf so the kids won't wonder who the guy with the microphone is. We walk inside to a storage room where Santa Charles starts unpacking his gear. And for no particular reason, we decide my name will be Nimble. By the time I'm done, I kind of look like a candy cane. Red striped shirt, red pants, a green vest, and a red elf hat with a plastic poinsettia pinned to it. Oh, you look great! (laughs) 
Now it's Santa Charles's turn. He bends over to look into a small mirror to apply some makeup to his eyebrows. Then he slips into his red pants and a coat with wrists lined with white fur and bells. And the final touch, his beard. A good beard is one where you can't see the straps at all. And the kids will look at you and they'll turn their head and they'll squint. And they're like, is that a real beard? And my response is always, it's real, it's real itchy. Now, you wouldn't think a guy in a white beard and a red suit with bells on his wrists would be a babe magnet, but apparently it's not that unusual for Santa to get hit on. Sometimes they're just extremely raunchy. They're just straightforward. They say they have a thing for Santa, and I'm, uh, I'm sorry, you know, Santa's a very happily married man, and, <laughs> and uh, you know, try the Easter Bunny. Finally, it's showtime. Come on in. Whenever you're ready. Okay. As Santa Charles makes his way through the gymnasium, the kids seem really stoked to see him. He makes his way toward a sign reading North Pole and past a line of excited kids. He heads into a small room and sits on a red chair next to a fake fireplace. Santa Charles introduces me to a small group of girls. Hello there, my dear. Hello. Oh, you look wonderful today. <laughs> yes, gather around. Please gather around. Oh, oh, oh. oh, and I would like you to meet my elf, Nimble. One of the girls asks what I'm doing. I tell her I'm recording to keep track of who's been naughty and who's been nice. For the next 90 minutes, boys and girls of all ages cozy up to Santa Claus for a little chat and a photo. Come right over here, my dear. There you go. And you come right there. Wonderful. On the count of three, say candy. One, two, three, candy. This is the time of year when some people get all dressed up and go see the Nutcracker. Of course, that's not happening this year in California, and many of us are spending the holidays away from our families. That's why this next story from 2014 about ballerina Lorena Fejo really struck me when we found it in our archives. She'd spent 15 years in starring roles as the Snow Queen and the Sugar Plum Fairy as part of the San Francisco Ballet but she grew up dancing with the National Ballet of Cuba. All of the years that I was trained and raised in Cuba, we didn't have an Ocracker at all. It was non-existent. Then I went to work in Europe uh, first when I left the country, and it was not very popular there either. Then I came to the Joffrey Ballet of Chicago, and it was my first Nutcracker, which was kind of rare for a ballerina because most of the ballerinas today, since they're little kids, you get involved into the Nutcracker. So for me, it was uh, introduced into my dancing career and my life quite late. It was so exciting being in the Joffrey for the first time with this beautiful production, uh, just full of colorful costumes and beautiful crowns with crystals and almost like a, living a dream that you had. The holidays in Cuba, the winter holidays, first of all, we are like a summer country, so that's already hard. Like, there is no snow. Christmas takes a different, I think, very different approach because we are a communist country still. Um, the whole idea of Santa and the fantasy is not very much encouraged. It's light because it's always a little bit of just me to go there. Okay. 
a little swirl before, like a pencil turn oh. after the pique. As Nutcracker as a ballet concept grew bigger and bigger in the entire world, I think we have also acquired that. So the last time I was there, I had the chance to sit down and watch an Nutcracker production, and it was very intriguing to me because I was like, what are they going to do? We are not big on this one. We really don't. It's not a tradition for us. And it was beautiful because I think they really fed from all over the world productions. You know, they took a little bit from, from everything. We celebrate Christmas by doing the Nutcracker. It's tough because you want to be gathering with the people in your country, doing the things that as a little kid were a costume to you, and you can't. You're here to perform and to entertain other people. In the beginning, it's a little bit of a shock, and as years go by, you adapt, and you understand that this is your life, and this is where you have chosen to live, and that's how it goes, and there is beauty in it too. There is a great upside to celebrating Christmas somewhere else. Although dancers do this production every year, the kids really make it, make the difference. They really bring the best out of you when you listen to the music and you're surrounded by them and you see their little faces illuminate because this is like magic to them. All of a sudden you understand that it's worth it. So one, two, three, four, five, and six, two, two, three. That's ballerina Lorena Fejo in a story about her Nutcracker performance with the San Francisco Ballet back in 2014. She was interviewed by our former intern and now super talented audio producer, Adiza Egan. She's a regular Carmen Banana since Mahana came back from Havana. That's a track from an album we highlighted on our show back in 2013. It's a kind of a Hanukkah soundtrack of sorts. We know Hanukkah ended last week, but we wanted to shout out this story about a cross-cultural collaboration connected to Jewish history. The Eidelson Society for Music Preservation is known for albums like Mazel Tov, Mis Amigos. This album is called It's a Scream, How Levine Does the Rumba. The Latin Jewish musical story, 1940s to 1980s. Music critic Steve Hockman brought us this review. Well before Spanglish worked its way into mainstream American consciousness, there was a hybrid tongue that we might call Span-dish. That's Spanish and Yiddish co-mingled and played for laughs by Latter-day vaudevillians the Barton Brothers in the post-World War II days of Mambo Mania. You'll find plenty of such laughs and groans on It's a Scream How Levine Does the Rumba, the latest release from the California-based Idelson Society for Music Preservation, dedicated to exploring odd tangents of Jewish-American musical culture. Just scan the titles of the two CD set's first disc, Meshuggah Mambo, My Yiddish Mambo, Matzah Ball Merengue, Mambo Shevitz. Man, oh man, that music, baby, dig that beat. Like a glass of wine, it's so cool and sweet. Gets my pulse a pulse and then my feet. Always start to do the Mambo Shevitz. Man, oh man. It's enough to make you say, 
There's some serious talent involved in this silliness, though, including such Afro-Caribbean music giants as Tito Puente and Machito. And as It's a Scream moves chronologically from the late 40s to the 80s, the jokes give way to intercultural respect and vibrant collaboration of substance and depth. It's a trip from the Borscht Belt to Barrio Boogaloo, from Manhattan to Malibu. Contrast the two versions of Hop and Aguila presented here. The first, by Cuban orchestra leader Perez Prado, adds literally a twist to the twist craze of 1962. But the second, just two years later, is by Cuban queen Celia Cruz, and it's no joke or fad hop at all. (laughs) Meanwhile, the best-selling Latin artist of the 60s, Latin in quotes, was Herb Alpert, a Jewish Los Angelino with his Tijuana brass. Best known for such faux Mexican instrumentals as The Lonely Bull, he's at his most sentimental, reaching into his real roots on the yearning Yiddish theater ode, Bells Mein Städtele Bells, which translates as My Hometown. And the Manhattan to Malibu part is embodied in Carol King, represented here twice, first as the brill-building co-writer of Little Eva's Latin-tinged 1962 hit Uptown, and again a decade later as an icon of the California singer-songwriter scene, making a loving side trip with the solid, boisterous Latin funk of Corazon. Context for this all-American mix is provided in several insightful liner note essays, including one by Steve Berlin, the Philadelphia Hebrew School dropout, who spent the last three decades in the most successful Chicano rock band of all time, East L.A.'s Los Lobos. But what context would Catskill's cut-ups like the Barton Brothers have for Larry Harlow? As one of the most innovative and respective figures on the essential 60s and 70s salsa label, Fania Records, Hear the nickname El Judío Marveloso, the Marvelous Jew. It's a song of his that the Idelson Society chose to cap off the journey of musical integration. It's stunning how in just one generation we go from oive shtick to a rollicking declaration with no irony, no puns, no equivocation. Yo soy Latino. Steve Hockman is an L.A.-based writer and the California Report's longtime pop music critic. He reviewed It's a Scream, How Levine Does the Rumba, the Latin Jewish musical story, 1940s to 1980s. His story was edited by Susie Racho. Every holiday season, Armenian-Americans celebrate the bounty of the year by eating a festive pudding, made with some signature California-grown ingredients. 
Back in 2011, I was still the California Report's Central Valley Bureau Chief based in Fresno, which is home to one of the state's largest Armenian-American communities. And I got a chance to watch this delicacy simmering on one family's stove. My name is Sirarpi Ayvazian. I'm a pastor's wife in Fresno. My husband, Father Arshan, is the uh, pastor at St. Paul's Armenian Orthodox Church. And this morning, I have Sasha with me. We're going to cook together an Armenian Christmas uh, New Year's Eve pudding, which has been used for many, many centuries by our people. Fabulous. And what's it called? It's called Anush Abur, which literally translates sweet soup or sweet pudding. She explains the dried fruit delicacy allowed a taste of sweetness during a time of fasting from animal products in the Armenian Orthodox calendar. Main ingredients are wheat, apricots, raisins, almonds, and hazelnuts, and sugar, of course. (laughs) And many of those things coincidentally, are things that we grow here in the Central Valley. Absolutely. In fact, today we're using all Fresno ingredients. Mrs. Ivazian has already pre-soaked the pearled wheat, nuts, and fruit overnight, blanched the almonds, and boiled the wheat mixture twice. Okay. It's prone to sticking to the bottom of the pot, so you need uh, strong hands to keep stirring it and really scraping the bottom so that it will not stick. While the wheat is coming to a boil again, she pours toasted hazelnuts onto a cutting board to chop. Now the next thing that we're going to do is chop the uh, apricots. A small woman, she has to climb up on her step stool to do battle with the thickening wheat pudding. See, it already started (laughs) sticking to the bottom. Now it's boiling. (laughs) Now I have to keep stirring it real steadily. And people wonder, how did women in the old days get exercise? As she stirs vigorously, she explains that according to Armenian Orthodox tradition, Christmas is celebrated after New Year's on January 6th. I find that doing it that way, in a way, is a benefit you know, to, uh, to us, at least to my family, because all the commercialism, unfortunately, has overtaken, you know, December 25th. Uh, so we don't pay attention to that. And then when January 6th comes around, everything is quiet, so you can really focus on the meaning of the feast. The pudding spatters up out of the pot again and again, burning her fingers. Another five minutes of cooking, and then we'll start adding the apricots and the... I'm going to wear gloves now. (laughs) Hello. Just as she scalds herself for the third time, her husband comes home on a lunch break from the parish wearing his priest's collar. I love Anushabur. It really satisfies this deep yearning for sweet. And the New Year's days of his childhood, he says, are tinged with its nutty apricot flavor. Everybody went to church. And from church, the younger ones visited the elders, and the elders uh, put Anushabur uh, on the table. We ate that. We we kissed their hand, wished them a happy new year. But you had to save room, because if you were going from one house to the next, this is pretty heavy stuff. That is... That is correct. But when you're young, you can eat the whole world. Back at the stove, his wife has added in the apricots and golden raisins, and the pudding is turning orange. Finally, she stirs in the nuts. Are you ready to taste it? 
I am so excited. I've been watching you make this for let's, the last three hours. Yes. Let's pour some. Mmm. It's really delicious. The apricot it's just the shines California through. Apricot is what makes the difference. Mm. We're hoping that the year will be sweet. Anush Allah. And when somebody eats something and say, oh, it's delicious, we say Anush Allah, meaning may it be sweet to your palate. For the California Report, I'm Sasha Coca in Fresno. That was me nine years ago. Seems like a different era, almost a lifetime ago. But that sentiment, may the new year be sweet, is something we could all probably use right about now, after the year that 2020's been. Here's wishing you and yours a very happy holiday and a healthy and safe one, too. That's the California Report magazine for this week. We're a production of KQED Public Radio in San Francisco. Our senior editor is Victoria Maleon. Our director is Amanda Font. Our technical producer is Seal Muller. And this week, we say goodbye to our beloved intern and Catalina Island correspondent, Ariella Markowitz. She's brought so much to our show. Memorable stories, humor, hard work. We will miss you, Ariella. We can't wait to see you on our list of famous alums who got their start on The California Report. Happy holidays, everybody. I'm Sasha Coca, and this is The California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. Support for The California Report comes from Hint. Fruit-infused water in over 25 flavors. No sweeteners, no calories. In stores or delivered from drinkhint.com. Hint. Water with a touch of true fruit flavor. Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose philanthropy includes Schmidt Futures, focused on finding exceptional people and helping them do more for others, together, on the web at schmidtfutures.com. And the James Irvine Foundation, committed to a California where all low-income workers have the power to advance economically. Learn more at irvine.org. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? Its history, its people, its unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out The Bay Curious Book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on The Bay Curious Podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get The Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Hey! 
Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support.